Um, as if you've probably figured out uh, this morning, we are talking about our glorious hope uh, that we have in Christ Jesus. And I'm struggling today because I keep steaming up my glasses, uh, mask or no mask. So hopefully I'll be able to see my notes today. Um, and, and so we're looking at this glorious hope. We're in week five. We've been moving through First Thessalonians together. And, and First Thessalonians we chose because it's a very important book. Uh, and, and we've said it's the model church in a hostile world. And so we've been looking at what does it look like to be the church of Jesus Christ in this time in a hostile world. And you know, it's interesting because Christian sociologists have concluded that we really are struggling. This was years ago and still true today even more so, that we've been really struggling uh, in the church of Jesus Christ in Canada to see the church grow. If you haven't understood it yet, the church of Jesus Christ in Canada has been on a major decline for decades. And so these sociologists have been studying and asking questions and looking at what is happening, why is this happening. One of the things they concluded is most part, most Canadians feel they're fine. They're, they're doing quite well. They're happy and fulfilled. There was one area that as we met as pastors and they talked to us, uh, that said that what Canadians do not have, that we have, is hope. You understand that today? It is hope. And so if we are going to reach this generation of Canadians, it is going to be this message of hope, this glorious message of hope in how we're going to reach them in this day. And so to be a model church in a hostile world, we need to know our glorious hope as the church of Jesus Christ. We need to talk about it. We need to celebrate it. And I want to challenge you with that question this morning. Do you have hope? Now hear me right. When we talk about hope as the church of Jesus Christ, we're not talking about wishful thinking that maybe perhaps will happen. We are talking about a factual truth that we put our faith in. It's almost for us like a word we are waiting for what is coming for us. We're not wishful thinkers as the church of Jesus Christ. We are waiting for what is our glorious hope. Now we know dark days come upon us all. We experienced that this week, as Pastor Mike already said, with two funerals here as a church discouragement, sorrow, grief, unfortunately, comes knocking at all of our doors at one time or another, much like the Christians in Thessalonica. Remember, we said they were new babes in Christ, they were just new believers, they were struggling, and Paul was so worried about them, and he sent Timothy to go find out how they were doing. Timothy comes back with this wonderful report that they are staying strong in the faith, even though persecuted, but we believe that Timothy brought back concerns and questions that the uh, Christians in Thessalonica had. That's what we believe this part of the letter is referring to questions that they've sent to Paul. And so one of the questions that they asked Paul was, what about those that have died in Christ? It's believed by some that maybe even some of them were martyred. Now imagine you're new in the faith and you're all excited about Jesus and the church is gathering and things are happening and then one of your loved ones, your brother or sister in Christ has just been martyred for the faith. 
you can understand the frustration and not understanding what's happening. And so they send Paul this question, what about those who have died? And so in our passage today, we see two realities that Paul is dealing with. He is dealing with, I guess it would hurt, help if I turned it on. I think, yeah, I think. There we go. Uh, uh, technology, all these things that I got to have going here. Um, you know, so we can see there's two uh, things, two realities that Paul deals with. And we heard that read, quite a long passage. But the first part is the end of chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. He's talking about those who have uh, fallen asleep in death. And then as we come into uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, he's talking to us that are awake, <laughs> that are still here, that are still alive. Now, if you don't think you're alive today, maybe the person beside you can pinch you and say you're alive. Ouch. If they're allowed to touch you. Some you're not allowed to touch. And so one of the first things he says here is don't worry. That's what he's saying to those. Don't worry. Now, to back up a little bit, we need to go into the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it was often referred to the day of the Lord. You'll read that and many of the prophets will talk about the day of the Lord. And in Old Testament theology and thinking, there was the old age, which was under this darkness and the power of sin and was seen as something bad. And then there was this glorious age that the Jews were waiting for. And, and they were waiting for this new, and they called it the golden age that they were waiting for. And what divided the old age and the new age was the day of the Lord. It was going to be a terrible day, but that terrible day would be like birth pains of a woman that is going through pains, but as she goes through those pains, there is a glorious birth of something new and wonderful, and that is how the Old Testament looked at it. Joel 2 uh, verse 31 says, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Malachi the prophet said in verse 1 of chapter 4, surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. That's just two prophets uh, speaking about it, but it is throughout the Old Testament. And as you came into the New Testament, the, the early church believed that the day of the Lord was the return of Christ. They put the two of those together. They began to realize that the day of the Lord that they had heard about in the Old Testament, that the prophets spoke about, this pivotal day was the very day that Christ was returning, and the two were put together. Now, as you look at this model behind me, uh, it's an important model. It's just important for us to understand where we are right now in the midst of this. Uh, theology calls it, we are in the already and the not yet right? We're kind of in this hovering pattern. <laughs> We're kind of in this waiting pattern. We are already kin kingdom, part of the kingdom. We are children of the king. We are already, if we are in Christ and have accepted him as our Lord and Savior, we are part of the kingdom. We sing about that. 
But we are waiting for that day. We are waiting for the king to return. And so when Christ came at his birth, this is why Christmas is pivotal. It's not about stockings and it's, and it's not about putting up the tree. It is about the fact that God broke into our world, this dark, present, evil age, and Christ was born. And Christ came the first time. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. And then at the cross, we see that the king has inaugurated his kingdom. At the cross, the kingdom was inaugurated. And even more importantly, when he came up from that grave and arose and ascended to the Father. And so the kingdom was inaugurated. But here we stand in this tension of the already and the not yet because it has not been culminated. The Lord is yet to come. The King is coming, and He's coming for His own, and He is coming on that wonderful and glorious but also dreaded day. He is coming for us. And so that is the model we need to be thinking about as we're thinking about the kingdom of God. See, in Paul's day, the pagans faced death with despair, hopelessness. Do you know it was found on a Roman grave? I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. Almost sounds like a tattoo that some young people would put on their arms today, <laughs> right? I was not, I became, I am not, I care not, right? I care not. Very, very fatalistic, sad, right? See, most of the tombstones in Rome in Paul's day, pagans were buried with the words put over it, taken away. On almost every grave, when they go and study it, they see this fact taken away. Our loved one's been taken away. But you know, if you enter into the catacombs, I never had that privilege to do. I got to go into the catacombs in Alexandria, Egypt, which was quite interesting. But Pastor Mike had the joy of being able to go into the catacombs in Rome. He got to see it with his own eyes. And in the catacombs, the Christians, the early Christians, even under persecution, you know what they put? He sleeps in peace. She sleeps in peace. The word actually is dormit, dormit, dormit. Actually, where we get the word dormitories. There, you'll learn something today. I learned something preparing this. You know, even more importantly, you know what our word cemetery means? The word cemetery means, comes from the Greek word, I'm not even going to tell you what it is, which literally means a sleeping place. So our cemetery, that very name that we call it, is a sleeping place, dormit, that those who have died in Christ are sleeping, put at rest. What do we usually say to people? May they rest in peace. And so that's what the cemetery is for us as Christians, is a place of resting in wonderful peace and sleep. What are we resting and waiting for? And so, you know, it's interesting that Jesus himself took on the full terror of death for us, took it all on, the separation, eternal separation from God. He took it on in his own flesh when he died on the cross for us. So now for us in Christ as Christians, Death is just a sleep, just a restful place that we wait for that wonderful day of the Lord. Interesting enough, there are some who call it that when we die, we go into soul sleep. We don't believe that. It's not our soul that sleeps 
in the grave because we know in God's word we are told that our soul at death immediately goes to be with the Lord. We know that. In 2 Corinthians 5, 8, Paul says we are told that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he looked at the thief dying next to him, and he said to him, today you shall be with me in paradise. So we know that when we die, our soul goes to be with the Lord. That's clear in Scripture. When we die, our soul goes to be with the Lord. What sleeps is the body. What's rested in the cemetery is the body. The body remains in the grave until that great day of the Lord. And until then, we rest in peace. See, through Christ's death on the cross, we who are in Christ can face death very differently than those who do not know Jesus. We are to face grieving differently. Now hear me right, Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend. And there's nothing wrong with weeping and grieving our loss, but we don't grieve like the world grieves, my friends. At our funerals, there should be a celebration. At our funerals, there should be this glorious hope that is preached and shared with people. And I've said it many times, when I'm gone, don't talk about me and my quilting and all the things that I did. That's wonderful. Talk about Jesus and the resurrection and that he's coming again for me. That's what I want preached at my funeral. You've heard it said, so I'm going to hold you accountable. (laughs) Because that's my glorious hope. It's great to have great talents and to live a life in a wonderful way. And maybe for the family, sometimes it's important to say all those things. But my friends, we do not grieve like the world grieves. He told us that already to the Thessalonians in verse 13. See, those who are outside Christ have really nothing to look forward to in death. They're hopeless. There's no hope. That's so sad. We as pastors have been around people. We have to do those kinds of funerals. And what we do is we try to minister to the living that are there because we don't want to give people false hope, but we want to take that opportunity to minister to people in their pain and to talk to them about the comfort of God, that God will come and meet with them in that time. But it is sad to see people in the face of death hopeless with no hope. So here we are, stuck between this already and not yet of the kingdom of God, and this is why we were taught to pray. How did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, where? Right here now, as it is in heaven. We've been been taught to pray that way because we're stuck in this already and not yet. And so Paul says here, he wants to encourage the church In Thessalonica, and he wants to encourage us today. Verse 16, he says, the Lord will return. You can be sure of that. Talk about this. Encourage one another about it. The Lord will return. Verse 16. He says he'll return how? With a shout. And when the Lord returns with a shout, the term that is used there is a military term that the commander-in-chief starts to shout out to his troops. And so they listen to him and his authority. And that's how Christ is coming back. Oh, my friends, he is not coming back like he left. 
He is coming back the victor. And I love that picture in Revelation of the king on the white horse as he comes forth. He is coming back forth in victory. But he gives that authoritative shout. And when he gives that shout, the archangel shouts out. And Jesus knows that the Father will sound forth his trumpet on that day of the return of the Lord. You know, we say this creed, it's so important for us to realize Christ died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. That is part of the church of Jesus Christ that has been said for over 2,000 years. Christ died, Christ rose, and Christ will come again. We believe that with everything within our being. What about our loved ones who have died? Our loved ones who have died in Christ, he says in verse 14, that they too will come forth. There will be a glorious and wonderful resurrection. Oh, we know that he tells us already, okay, look over your shoulder. Look back, which we do as the church. We look back and we realize that Christ died. The cross is in front of churches. We wear them around our necks. Christ died, hallelujah. The one thing we forget to do is put the empty tomb over on this side. Christ rose, hallelujah. But he also gets them looking forward. Now, if Christ died and Christ rose, guess what? He's coming again. And you can go to the bank on that. And we know it because these two things are true. Therefore, that's true also. His promises are true and amen. And what is beautiful, the resurrection that he talks about here is not Christ's resurrection because it already happened. He's talking now about the resurrection of your loved ones, your dear friends who you've laid to rest in the cemetery, who have died in Christ. My friends, we can't uh, get that across enough as pastors as we go out into that cemetery and we say the person rests in peace and we lay those remains in the ground. What we are doing there is holy ground. It's something mystical. It is something amazing. It is something of great faith. As we lay our loved ones down in the ground, we are believing that in that day there's going to be a great resurrection. And up from that grave, they're going to rise. Not just Christ, but in the future they will too. That's what the committal is all about. That is why we say that person's name, that they have died in Christ, and often uh, even the funeral director, as we say, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, they'll put that cross on that casket as a symbol. This one died in Christ. And so there is this reality that there will be this future resurrection in that great day. The dead are still with Christ. Do you believe that this morning? See, if we are united with Christ in life, we're also united with Christ in death. We're always united with Christ. If we have died in Christ, if we are a believer and know the Lord personally, we are as united with Christ in our death as we are united in life. And so all those dear ones that we've put tombstones out there and pictures and names and are special in our hearts and we walk through that cemetery and we are reminded, we are reminded of these loved ones, these dear ones that are in unified with Christ as much as we are unified with Christ today in this place of worship. This union with Christ guarantees this wonderful outcome. What a hope we have. Do you realize that that's what the symbol of baptism is? Have you been baptized? What did, what did you do in the waters of baptism? 
you died with Christ under the waters, and you come out of the waters in life in Christ. And so that baptism is a symbol of dying with Christ and now coming alive to Christ. It is a picture of your future resurrection from the body if the Lord tarries that long. That's what baptism, why it's so important, why it's a sacrament that we take. That is why when we come to the Lord's table and we're working to find a way to be able to come to the Lord's table again as a church, it's the other sacrament that Jesus left behind. And as we come to the Lord's table and we partake of his death, the symbol of his blood and the symbol of his body, the blood that that takes away our sins, that reminds us that we've been cleansed, hallelujah, we've been bought by a price, and then we eat of what? His body, a symbol of his resurrected body. Yes, the body that was nailed to the tree, but oh, my friends, his body isn't there anymore. Where is it right now? At the right hand of the Father. And so as we take the bread in that sacrament, we're pointing forward to that day when this body, as decayed as it will be, will come alive again. And we will meet with the Lord. That's what, if if we get a picture of this, everything we do as a church begins to make sense. If we can get a vision of what this is all about. Jesus promised, because I live, you shall live also. And so we are insured of our future resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 55, we've heard it said at the grave, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So for us, death is not a dead end for us. It's a prelude to what's coming. And so we see that there is this wonderful uh, return of the Lord and this resurrection. And praise God, verse 17, there's going to be a glorious reunion. Can't wait for that day. Paul says, like any royal visit, when, the, when a VIP or a royal visitor would come, they would be greeted by a great throng, a welcome party that would go to be with them. And they would come into that city together with great celebration Joy. I, I thought of often the pictures that I've seen in Africa when a when a, a, a important group comes and, and you see and you hear the children singing all the way outside the town and excited that they're coming and marching them in. Any of you guys that have been on mission trips, marching them in to the town because they're so excited that you have come. Paul has this vision here that the king is coming. And those that have died in Christ and us who are alive will be that great throng that will welcome the king into this world. We who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, he says in verse 17. And so we will be with the Lord forever. I love that statement, encouragement for you today who have lost loved ones together with them. We will be together with the Lord, but we will also be together with them. And the ultimate purpose is that we will forever be with the Lord upon his return. He will come to bring all believers to be with him permanently. 
Jesus promised this already in the Gospel of John, didn't he? He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may also be. It's God's desire that even though separated now and he's given us his Holy Spirit as our comforter and guide and presence, there will come a day when we will all be reunited. My friends, this is the hope that we have. His return, his resurrection, our resurrection, and our reunion. But then he tells us to what? We're not dead in the graves out in the cemetery. We're the ones still awake. And so if we're the ones still awake, he says to you, you better be ready. Now, in the beginning of chapter 5, he says to them, don't speculate about the dates. God helped the church of Jesus Christ. Have we ever read that? Don't speculate. And, and people have made a fortune selling books and videos speculating. And yet Jesus himself told us in Acts and other places that only the Father knows. He doesn't even know when that great day of the Lord will be. So why do we waste so much time speculating? And I want to challenge you today as Paul challenged those in Thessalonica, be ready. That's the more important thing than sitting back and speculating. You need to be ready, my friends, for the Lord's return. We don't know when it will happen. He says in verse 4 and 5, you should know, you should be ready because you are children of the light. You are children of the day. You are not children of the night or of the darkness. We walk in the light, not in the darkness. You know, I was thinking when I travel, I don't know if you've traveled other time zones, <clears throat> but I have traveled back, especially living in Europe for so many years, traveling back and forth. And you know, when you're in a time zone, what happens is, is the middle of night and it's three in the morning and you're wide awake because your body's telling you it's the day. It's morning, time to get up. And everyone around you is sleeping and they're still in darkness. That's kind of what Paul is saying here. Yes, we live in that present dark age, but we are not from darkness. We have now been born gloriously into his light and we are children of the coming kingdom. Therefore, we are children of the day. And so we need to act accordingly that we are children of this glorious light and this glorious day. So he challenges us to be awake, be alert. Some of you are falling asleep on me already. Because <clears throat> he said terrible things are going to come. We know in the Old Testament we said that that day of the Lord was a terrible day that was coming. We know even in this day that there's going to be shaking and things happening on that day of the Lord, the return of the Lord. It's not going to be a pretty day, my friends. We're warned, as, as even Jesus warned, it will come like a thief in the night when you least expect it. But we're also told that it will come with birth pains. What are birth pains? Labor pains. Labor pains come to give birth to something new. Hallelujah. <laughs> All of us that have given birth to children, some of the men have been in with their wives and have gone through it too, that we've had to go through excruciating, terrible pain to have the birth of this beautiful new child. And so God is saying through this, through Paul, that there's going to come a day and it's going to be a terrible day, but as that day comes, it's going to be birthing God's new heaven and new earth, new creation. Everything will be made new again as we read throughout Scripture. He says, you need to stay sober. 
You need to stay awake. Now, I know sober can deal with drunkenness, which we know is wrong, but it also has to do that we could easily be people who become insensitive to the things of God and towards the things of God. And sleepiness can be that we're distracted by the things of this world if we're not careful. We can fall asleep, but we are challenged to be awake and sober. We're also challenged to be armed. Now, this is not Ephesians 6. This is not the putting on the full armor that you see in Ephesians 6, but he tells us to put on two things. What he tells us to put on is a breastplate and a salvation helmet. He says, okay, this helmet and this breastplate are defensive parts of armor. And as we put that on, he's saying, guard your mind, your thoughts, guard your heart, right? Two important things for us as Christians. As we wait for the return of the Lord, we need to guide and guard our thoughts and we need to guard our hearts. And he says, your breastplate is for that faith and love but hope, the hope of salvation, wear it as a helmet. Do you know, think about that. He's saying to us, like what we're doing today, we're talking about this, the return of the Lord. This should be in our conversation. This should be in our thoughts. This is what we should be thinking about, our glorious hope. Do you realize if you uh, look at the beginning of this book, as we've been preaching week after week, we've been talking about faith, love, and hope. And so basically, Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, hope is supposed to be a third of your character, a third of your equipment. Oh, in the church of Jesus Christ, we do very well talking about faith, that we need to have faith. We talk about how we need to love one another, but do we take a third of our time and our discussion to talk about the glorious hope that we're waiting for? And so he challenges them that they need to do that. And then he says, you need to be assured. He ends our passage with saying, encourage one another. Encourage one another with this truth. Encourage one another in difficulty, in hard times, in dark days, in COVID pandemic. Encourage one another. And then I love what he says here. Pastor Mike and I have been saying it over and over again. God doesn't want us to suffer wrath. But he created us to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look there at verse 9 and 10. It's not God's desire that anyone should perish, but that all could be saved. That's God's desire. So you don't see Pastor Mike and I going around. The wrath of God, the wrath of God, the wrath of God. Oh, my friends, the wrath is coming. But I, with tears in my eyes, tell people about Jesus and the remedy for their sin, and the salvation that put him there, and the love that nailed him to the cross. Wrath is coming, but God has not created you or me for wrath. He has created a wonderful way out for us. That's what Paul is saying here. So why wouldn't you take the remedy? Why wouldn't you want to be in Christ? Why wouldn't you want to know Jesus and know that your sins have been paid for and they've been washed away and you've been cleansed? Why wouldn't you want to know that you have a glorious hope? Why wouldn't you want to know when you lay your body down in that grave, when the family does it, that there's coming a glorious hope and day? I don't understand this. But we keep preaching it. We keep sharing it. That's our call. 
Our call is to see as many as possible die in the Lord, that they might rise in the Lord. That's our weeping, that we weep over our children and our grandchildren, why we weep over our neighbors and the ones we work with, because we want them to know this glorious truth. It's not God's desire that any should perish, but all would come to his truth, his salvation. That's why Jesus died. That's why he was nailed to a cross, that we now might have life and that we can live for him. Oh, it's a hard message, but it's the truth. Dying without Christ means that none of these promises I've said this morning is for you. None. If we die not in the Lord, all we have is a hopeless end. It is, this is written for those of the church, for us, who know Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, who has forgiven us of our sins, that we can say like the Apostle Paul, I am in Christ and Christ is in me. And that there is this union that nothing can separate, not even death itself can separate us from Christ. Do you know that this morning? Do you have that full assurance? Because God is saying to us through Paul in this letter, God wants you to have that assurance. God wants you to have that hope. Oh, my friend, we have an endless hope instead of a hopeless end. God does not want you to face his wrath on that great and glorious day. He wants you to be with that, those that will be reunited with Christ and all those that have died in Christ. So, how will you choose to live your life? And this knowledge is up between you and the Lord. I feel that I have preached God's word today with all honesty and fervency. I have not shared the opinions of man. Because we could, have, we could spend here till eternity talking about end time opinions and ideas and thoughts. I've tried to stay true to this text today and allow the truth of Christ to speak to you. And I challenge you today... Are you in Christ? Do you have an hopeless end? Or do you have an endless hope? I'll end with this poem called The Dash. I thought it's quite interesting. It's been used a few times in funerals. It's about we are caught now in this already and not yet. And the truth of it is we are caught in our own lives that way, aren't we? We have been born and we know there will come a day of our death. Let's talk about it because usually we don't like to talk about it. Families don't like to talk about it. But it is a reality. Now mine would be 1961. Now you know how old I am. Not 1969. You put your date there. He's counting on his fingers. But I'll end with this called The Dash. I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on the tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that first came the date of birth and spoke of the following date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For the dash represents all the time they spent alive on earth, and now only those who love them know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live and love and how we spend our dash. 
So think about the long and hard. Are there things you'd like to change? For you never know how much time is left that still can be rearranged. To be less quick to anger and show appreciation more and love the people in our lives like we never loved before. If we treat each other with respect and more often wear a smile, remembering that this special dash might only last a little while. So when your eulogy is being read with your life's actions to rehash, would you be proud of the things they say about how you lived your dash? And I would add, would they be able to say that you are in Christ, that you died with Christ because you are united with him in his death and then you are united with him in his life. Worship team is going to come as I pray. Lord, as pastors, we see a lot in our day. Often all we can do is bring it to you in prayer. Often all we can do quietly is discuss it amongst ourselves as pastors. And sometimes, Lord, we're just amazed at how people grieve in our day. All the things that we have heard at funerals and services and all the things that are said. We've seen the difference when a person who is in Christ and the grieving of that believing family, and yet we've seen the uh, uh, hopelessness of those that grieve without the Lord. And, and the reality, uh, many people only get to do that once in a while when a loved one or a friend passes, and then they forget about it. But today you want to encourage the church of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of a pandemic, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of loss, even in the midst of worry, even in a dark world, you want to encourage the church of Jesus Christ today, that if you are in Christ, you have a glorious hope. And be encouraged and encourage one another with this truth. Lord, we thank you that, that for the truth of your word, that you told us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But Lord, you didn't give your son that, that we would uh, perish, that we would face wrath. You gave your son as a precious gift for us that by accepting this precious gift, we can be in Christ and we can be saved. Saved from what? Saved from eternal damnation. Saved from the day of wrath. Saved from a life of hopelessness. That's what we're saved from that we can walk in this glorious hope. And so I pray today, if there are any that would question today whether they are in Christ, this would be the moment they would settle accounts. They would open their hearts and say, Jesus, you know me, you see me, you knew me from the day of my birth, you knew me, as the psalmist said, even in my mother's womb, before my parents knew me. And you know me, you know everything about me. Lord, I come before you with much regret and shame. Would you come and cleanse my sins today? Would you come and clean house? And would you come and reside in my life? And would you be my Lord and my King today? And even more so in the day to come, you would be my Lord and coming King. God, would this be indeed in this house or on the television today, or whoever's watching it on a phone or an iPad, would this be the day of their salvation? We would say hallelujah, amen. And the word tells us that the, even the angels would be rejoicing in heaven if just one would say, 
Lord, I want to be in Christ, and Christ, I want you in me. Now, Lord, I pray you would give us visions of that glorious day when there will be a great reunion, not just with Jesus, but with all of our loved ones that we've placed over there, right in our cemetery, that place of peace, that place of rest, that there will come a day when we will see the Lord, but we'll also get to see them. What a glorious hope we have. May people go forth in that glorious hope today and share it with others, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Won't you stand with us?